Welcome to Vet Talk with Dr. Silver, sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. For over 20 years, RX Vitamins for Pets has been providing leading edge, condition specific nutraceutical formulas for veterinary professionals around the world. You can learn more by visiting rxvitamins.com or you can give them a call at 1 800 792 2222. Hello. And welcome to Vet Talk. I am your host, Dr. Rob Silver, and I'm very excited today for the opportunity to speak directly with veterinary professionals from around the world who are experts in the webinar topics I provide to veterinarians. Today's show, we'll be talking with Dr. Kendra Pope, an integrative oncologist, which follows my webinar on integrative oncology. And um, we're looking forward to learning much more from Dr. Pope today about this um, emerging field of integrative oncology. Dr. Pope is a 2011 graduate of the University of Florida. She completed her small animal medicine rotating internship and residency in medical oncology at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Pope completed certifications in veterinary acupuncture, Chinese herbal therapy, food therapy, and Tui Na at the, China, at the Qi Institute of the Traditional Chinese Veterinary Medicine and continues to advance her knowledge and skill set in various holistic and integrative modalities. Kendra practices integrative medicine and oncology at Red Bank, New Jersey, and serves as a visiting clinician in integrative oncology at the Matthew J. Ryan Veterinary Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. She is president for the American College of Veterinary Botanical Medicine. Please welcome Dr. Pope this morning to our podcast of, on integrative oncology. Good morning, Dr. Good morning, Dr. Pope, Kendra. Um, how are your holidays progressing so far in this unusual world that we find ourselves in these days? Oh, yeah, it's very interesting, but it's always a good, I always enjoy this time of year because it's just a really good time to kind of look back and see what you're grateful for and plan for the future. And, um, you know, despite all of the craziness, thankfully, all of my family is healthy and that's what's most important. So um, happy to be moving on mm-hmm. to my new year, but grateful for um, the things that I did get this year. So. Do you, find, do you find that your caseload gets a little bit frantic towards the end of the year with the holidays and um, all of these, you know, kind of Murphy's Law sort of last minute things that um, you couldn't predict, but then wind up becoming crises that you have to deal with? Oh, absolutely. And I think at any time you're dealing with serious terminal diseases, I think the pet parents are under extra stress, obviously, during this time of year. And so I think that that um, manifests in them maybe being hyper aware of things or hyper concerned because you're not going to be in the office. So, yeah, I think that there's a lot of that going on. So you you are trained um, in a conventional sense as as a conventional board-certified veterinary oncologist. What was it that led you to um, to expand your practice to include integrative modalities and the integrative approach? I don't know that I ever have told you this story, Rob. So, um, and, you know, like all of us, um, if you're a holistic practitioner, you probably have some story of where holistic medicine helped improve your own life or somebody close to you and kind of brings you down your journey. Um, But I was in um, my second year of veterinary school and I was getting a lot of chest pains and um, they were, you know, how I was manifesting my stress. 
And um, my conventional diagnostics found that there was nothing wrong. And they prescribed me Xanax and said, here, take your Xanax and you'll be fine. And then I would take it and I would fall asleep. And then I would get more stressed because I wasn't able to study and I'd have more chest pains. And I quickly recognized that the symptomatic treatment wasn't helping me to get to the root cause of the problem, which wasn't helping me get past the root cause of the problem. And so... um, Around the same time, there was an acupuncture lab going on at school, and they were showing how calming it was and talked about all of the benefits. And I went home and I researched to see if there was any publications about the treatment of chest pain angina for acupuncture or with acupuncture. And of course there were, there was a bunch of them. And so very quickly, I recognized um, the benefits in conjunction with everything else. And I knew by the time, probably by my second year of vet school that I was going to be an oncologist. And it just became very obvious how important these tools are for the cancer patient. And so um, I think I just feel really fortunate because I think that I found my calling kind of simultaneously um, and have been able to kind of blend them as I go along, which has been great. Well, I noticed that you have an appointment um, at the University of Pennsylvania in integrative oncology. So integrative oncology now is actually a bona fide um, approach within the the realm of oncology? So I think that um, what Penn, which my many of my conventional colleagues also will acknowledge is that despite the fact that we are obviously limited in the type of rigorous double-blind placebo-controlled trials that we would like to have in our community, there are a lot of possible benefits as well as minimal side effects, as well as a high demand from our client base. The other reason that um, it's become very obvious about how important it is to have integrative oncologists supporting the conventional oncology patients is that not only in publications through surveying people, but in a few studies we've done in veterinary medicine, it's very obvious that if we don't support our client in pursuing these types of of tools, nutrition, herbs, supplements, different types of um, non-traditional therapies that are generally considered alternative or complementary, that the clients will do it on their own. And so we have a choice as to whether we work alongside trusted practitioners to employ these modalities in a way that we feel is safe or to tell them that it's not safe and then have them do it on their own. And so um, uh, it's more of a collaboration with them because they know how important and beneficial it is. And I think that most of my colleagues would tell you that in a consult, probably, I asked one of my colleagues recently how many they thought it was, and they said eight to nine. Out of eight to nine out of 10 consults, you're going to get asked about nutrition and supplements in an oncology consult. And we don't get taught any of that in our conventional training. And so if you're being bombarded with these questions all the time, it's very frustrating as a doctor to say, I don't have the answer for you. And it's not their job to have the answer. So it's great when you have a trusted colleague that you can work with that can give them answers so that you can all work together. So, you know, it's a bona fide specialty in the sense that it's a collaboration. Well, I know that um, when I was in practice in, in integrative medicine, I would have my oncologist that I would go to who would um, who I could work with, and many of them would get those same questions from their clients, and they were you know weren't trained to 
provide the nutritional consultation or the herbal consultation. And so they would refer them back to me. They would ask them, you know, well, isn't there something holistic we can do? And so then they would refer them to me knowing that I would um, respect whatever their, you know, their orders were for the uh, treatment of this animal versus, you know, going against saying, oh, chemotherapy is terrible or whatever, that I would work with them. And uh, we do, we, I do believe that, that using the, that integrating um, complementary therapies with conventional therapies really um, is very patient-centered, and it really assists the patient oftentimes in overcoming many of the challenges of chemotherapy, cancer therapies, or side effects of cancer itself. But, you know, it also provides, I think, the client with um, a um, um, empowerment to feel as though they're doing more than just taking their animal somewhere for someone to inject some toxic drugs, that they're actually caring for them at home. And I think that there's, especially if you're dealing with a terminal patient, you know, having that that in, um, empowering period where the where the, the, the pet owner is able to, to, to minister to the animal in a real actionable way, I think is is invaluable. You know, and whether the animal survives or not, I think it's it's really how you play the game, and I think it really um, provides long term memories to the client that they felt like they really stepped up to the plate and did a good job. Yeah, absolutely. And there are um, studies and people that when they, for um, humans who seek out these type of modalities, what their motivation is to do that. And that empowerment is always high on the list when um, those types of studies are evaluated. Because, you know, the more serious the diagnosis, the more desperate people feel. And specifically when caretakers are surveyed. So, you know, on the human side, it's probably more similar to like a pediatric oncology or a geriatric oncology where there's a primary caretaker who might not be the patient. And they really feel helpless in caring for their loved one. And so that ability to be empowered in cooking nutritious food or giving supplements at home that have minimal side effects and low toxicity can really help with them feeling like they are doing everything that they can and that they can put their mind at ease that they've tried everything, even if it doesn't go well. Um, And so, yeah, that's not only, I feel like your experience, I feel like that's definitely what um, has been acknowledged that people claim to be one of the, the primary motivating factors. So, and I hear it all the time in practice, you know, they, if they can't talk to their pet and ask them what they want, and they have to carry the burden of making the conventional treatment decision themselves, I think that it's also a big relief for people to feel like they're mitigating any side effects and toxicity that they may be causing. So yeah, I completely agree. You know, there was an interesting study that was published um, a few years ago, probably more than just a few years ago, by Sue Lana from CSU, in which she did a survey, um, surveying um, um, pet owners who were on the cancer service at CSU as far as whether they were using any kind of complementary modalities. And quite a few were. They were maybe 40% of them were using supplements, 40% of them were praying. Um, But what I found to be most interesting with that study was about two-thirds of them weren't telling their veterinarians that they were pursuing complementary therapies. What are we doing wrong as veterinarians that we can't instill the trust in our clients that they will, you know, give us disclosure of what they're doing at home? These, you know, these modalities could be very helpful, but they could also interfere with therapies if we're not aware of them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it actually was 15 years ago now already. And it's the only wow. survey study we have. It was back in 2005. And yeah. I had done a similar survey in my residency that was presented as an abstract, but never published. And I found similar numbers. And when you look at an end, it again, correlates to behavior on the human side. When you ask them why they don't disclose it, one of the reasons is that they're never asked directly. So people don't necessarily consider um, herbs and supplements to be medications. So if, if they say, what meds are you on? They might not disclose it because they don't think that they are them. So one thing that you have to do is ask specifically what you're feeding, what supplements you're giving. But one of the major reasons that they said um, that they don't disclose it is because they're fearful that the practitioner would make them stop and that they did feel that there was a perceived benefit. And so it's about um, not being aligned with the teammates on your team. And that's something that I always explain to my owners. And, you know, I think that especially as a, a integrative medicine practitioner, what we do is so much more reliant on our clients being in the driver's seat and having active participation. You know, this is not a one-way relationship where they come into my office and I prescribe a treatment plan and they just do what I say. This is a big um, team effort where they're really in charge and I'm just here to support their needs and to tell them what to use and to make sure to ensure that they have high quality products and that it's safe and et cetera. But they really are in the driver's seat and when it comes to something as serious as cancer, it really is important that they have teammates that they can trust and that are aligned with one another. And so if they are working with a conventional oncologist that's adamant that what we're doing is wrong or bad or unsafe, that's never going to work. And so if they really value this, then I always advise them to seek another opinion and to see if they can find someone who's open to it. And that's, you know, that's not to be rude or dismissive of conventional therapies, because that's not at all how I feel. I, I, you know, at least half of my patient population are getting chemo or radiation or some kind of conventional therapy. But it really is important that they understand that they are the primary caregiver and they are in the driver's seat and we're here to support them and to give them the information that they lack, but they're really the ones that are ultimately making the last decision. And I think that that burden too can be overwhelming for some people and they don't like that when I tell them, no, you're in charge, <laughs> I'm not in charge. But I think it really is about having a team that you trust and that you can communicate openly and freely with so that you know their goals can be met. In my uh, webinar on integrative oncology, I meant I talk about this team. I think team building is mm -hmm. super important because you know the a given practitioner can't provide it all. You know right. the the owner wants to have a homemade diet. You know, got to bring a nutritionist in to do it right. Look at the ketogenic diet, for instance, and have that put together. You you have to deal with you know the terminal the the, the fact the animal is probably going to be terminal, you know, you need to bring in a pastor or a counselor to deal with anticipatory grief, especially if it's a, you know, a, a, an a old geriatric member of the household and everybody's, the whole family is going to be, is grieving over the anticipated loss. You know, you need an integrative practitioner, you need conventional oncologist, you need a, you know, a bunch mm -hmm. of people. And it, you know, I guess using that phrase, it takes a village, doesn't it? Yep. Really to, uh, to treat a cancer patient. And, um, so, um, here's, here's a question. I'll, I'll put it right to you. 
Um, what do you think about the outcomes? Do you think outcomes are improved? Is there any? Do you have any metrics on that as far as with the um, application of um, complementary therapies on top of conventional therapies? Are you seeing improved outcomes? Is there a way of actually measuring that? Since we treat each patient individually, it's really hard to compare it to if we had not treated it because you can't really do that. What, what, yeah. are, you, what are your and- impressions, Doc? It is definitely very difficult to do those types of single intervention comparative clinical trials because any uh, integrative practitioner knows that you know if if these agents worked as single agents they would be turned into chemotherapy like many of them are mm-hmm. and you know synthetically created and isolated and etc and that's not what we're using so generally speaking when we're putting together protocols. It's combinations of nutritional interventions, multiple herbs and dietary supplements, um, maybe some other stronger, um, more forceful types of therapies. And so, yeah, absolutely. And not only is it individualized for the patient, meaning that, you know, and you know this, Rob, obviously two patients with lymphoma could have completely different protocols, um, but it's also individualized for the resources of the owner, you know? So if they are paying out of pocket for chemotherapy, one owner may have the resources to do all the things integrative and another or another owner may only have limited resources. And so it can be very challenging from a clinical trial perspective, but I will tell you in my anecdotal experience, which obviously is the weakest form of scientific research, um, but also the feedback that I get from all of the oncologists that refer patients to me, they tell me time and time again that the reason they refer to me is because it is a noticeable difference between the patients that seek integrative care and the ones that don't. And I will tell you, it's not just about, you know, for the pet parents, what's important and what I always have to educate them is it's not just about, um, you know, does my pet live longer and does their cancer go into remission faster or stay into remission longer if they get integrative therapy versus conventional care? It's not just about that because a lot of times where I think the the natural interventions are most powerful is not in forcefully putting cancer into remission or having it not come back or not metastasize. It's managing quality of life and side effects of conventional treatment. So for example, you know, many chemotherapies and agents that are used alongside chemotherapy can be really hard on the kidneys. We have some really powerful herbs that are very, and uh, nutritional agents that are very supportive to kidney function. And I have kept a lot of patients out of going into failure while they're on chemo because of that, that, you know, they would have been stage two, stage three kidney disease um, and probably had to stop their protocol. Um, you know, there's published research to show that nutraceutical agents can minimize chemotherapy toxicity of the liver. And you and I, obviously, Rob, have talked about using other agents, not even that specific one, and seeing the same kinds of results. Um, there's studies about preventing heart toxicity from chemotherapy. And so not only are they making our patients' quality of lives better during treatment? They're allowing the conventional oncologist to increase what's called dose intensity and dose frequency, meaning that they're not being limited in the amount of chemo that they want to use to kill the cancer because of side effects and and toxicities, which allows them to be more aggressive in treating the cancer, which should hopefully correlate to better cancer outcomes. So I think that at the end of the day, everybody thinks, well, do they do better? Meaning do they live longer? Um, 
But honestly, a lot of times, if they do better in the sense of less toxicity, better quality of life, they do live longer because the biggest difference between human oncology and veterinary oncology and end of life is that our patients die when their perceived end of life is, is their quality of life is not good. Whereas a person's end of life is when their body fails them. And so there is a vast difference in that timeline. Um, it's also related to owner's perceptions and owner's perceptions of end of life. So I do absolutely feel that there is significant noticeable differences between those patient populations. Um, and not just because we're curing cancer and keeping it in remission, but because we're maintaining really high quality of life, which allows them to continue to live with their cancer. Very good. Time out for a station break. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, you're listening to Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver, sponsored by Arx Vitamins for Pets. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Kendra Pope, integrative um, oncologist extraordinaire. Um, so, Kendra, <laughs> um, can you share with us some of the uh, these modalities that you that you use, the ones that you've adopted, and explain to us why you've chosen those? Because there are so many different alternative modalities out there. Which ones have you chosen, and for what reasons, and what have you been finding about their use? Yeah, so there there are there are so many, and I think that um, the reality, and you know, you speak to any holistic practitioner and you know, you, you could say, um, you know, take three integrative oncologists and put a patient in front of them and say, what would your protocol be? And they probably would all be slightly different. And the reality is that because botanicals and nutrition are not these single forceful unidirectional types of interventions, that oftentimes you can use different protocols and still get very good outcomes. And so, Kind because you're the, because the, you're treating the you're treating the patient. You're not really treating the disease. The, the exactly. patient's transforming the disease. Exactly. And so, um, and you know, whereas if a patient would come to me with a diagnosis of hemangiosarcoma, the conventional literature shows that really doxorubicin is really the only agent that has been proved to be effective. And so, every patient that comes to me with hemangiosarcoma, it's going to be recommended they get doxorubicin. Whereas when I get a hemangiosarcoma patient from an integrative perspective, there's various different protocols that I might choose based on location, patients' uh, environmental history, patients' um, you know other lifetime histories or diseases. So <clears throat> they are very different. Um, but um, really, when I talk to my owners, um, we recently attended CE where there was this lovely image of a pyramid. And I've really been envisioning that lately when I talk to my clients, because that's what it is to me. You know, you start with this foundation of changes that are focused on immune supporting, um, anti-inflammatory, um, and really just uh, minimizing cancer-related side effects. And then you build from there more aggressively um, based on the ability of the patient, the owner, resources, et cetera. And so that first kind of tier in that pyramid is really the nutrition and then the dietary supplements and some herbs, um, the more gentle 
immune supporting herbs, not necessarily the more aggressive cytotoxic herbs. And so, um, you know, I had an oncologist colleague ask me once, like, Kendra, do you really think the diet makes a difference? And do I really think the diet makes a difference in the sense of, do I see diet alone shrink tumors? I personally have not had that experience where I see the diet just by itself be, you know, something that shrinks tumors. Um, but I do absolutely find that there is a significant difference in my patient populations that are being fed real food diets versus the more processed food diets. Um, we know that dogs and definitely cats have no carbohydrate requirements nutritionally. And so these higher carbohydrate diets are likely not helping their terrain for their cancer. Um, and so lowering the percentage of carbohydrates based on what's appropriate for the patient in front of you, I've definitely found to be different and, and be important, um, especially with glycemic load and glycemic index and glycemic spikes. Um, and then using supplements that are going to help to address whatever's going on right in front of them. So if it's mushrooms for immune support, if it's um, anti-inflammatory herbs for you know significant cancer-related inflammation, if it's mitigating side effects of their tumor, whether that's pain or GI distress or um, uh, some other type of um, bleeding or something other problem. So <clears throat> those are kind of that first level of tools. And all of the patients are advised about dietary changes and these baseline supportive herbs. And then from there, they can become fancier and more aggressive and more tailored to the things that are considered more cytotoxic. So having the ability to kill cancer cells. So if that's something like high doses of ascorbic acid or vitamin C, if that's something called mistletoe therapy um, or viscum album, which is actually the most widely used alternative cancer treatment in the world and in mainstream in places like Europe, um, or even our more aggressive cytotoxic herbs, which are the ones that chemo have been derived from. Um, and so the tools are the toolbox that we bring to the consultation for every patient is similar in the sense of what's inside of it, but which specific ones and what combinations and what order that they're used is a little bit different for every patient based on what their owners are interested in and what their needs are. So um, mistletoe, that's this, tis the season for mistletoe, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's the cytotoxic principle with mistletoe? That's done by injection, is that correct? It is. So um, most commonly injected under the skin in people, there are some practitioners that are using it intravenously. That's not the traditional use of it. It's always been injected under the skin. Um, it's actually a hundred years old this wow. year. Um, and so it's been around a very long time. Um, and there is a large clinical trial going on at Johns Hopkins now that has been enrolling, I think for a year or two. So um, they should be finishing enrollment soon and hopefully publishing some interesting things in stage four cancer patients. But <clears throat> this mistletoe is not a traditional extract in the sense of, um, you know, either drying an herb and turning it into a powder or encapsulating, drying an herb and turning it into a tablet, drying an herb and turning it into a tincture, which is a liquid preparation. This specific preparation of this plant um, is actually uh, related to um, a vortex and processing it in a way where it's centrifuged. And so it's believed to be manipulated slightly differently than some others. And then it's turned into a product that can be injected sterilely. And so the specific 
you know, quote unquote, active ingredients or constituents in the plant that are believed to have the cytotoxic activity. There's many of them, some even um, polysaccharides like in our mushroom, but the ones that are believed to have the cytotoxic activity are the viscotoxins. And so um, depending on the strain of mistletoe that you use, those uh, types of viscotoxins might be different. Something very interesting about mistletoe is that it's actually a parasitic plant. And so it takes on attributes and uh, qualities of the tree that it's parasitizing. And so that is how the mistletoe is identified based on its host tree. And so, um, based on which tree you're using, those viscotoxin profiles might be slightly different. And so they are believed in in vitro studies to have direct cytotoxic activity and abilities to kill cancer cells. In clinical trials, there is more evidence to um, uh, quality of life parameters. But the big difference in studying these outcomes is that uh, when you study injectable chemotherapy, what you're monitoring for is a tumor to shrink, to shrink, the tumor response rate. And based on how much it shrinks depends on how much the chemo is working. Now, when you're using things like mistletoe, it's more like when you're using um, immune modulatory and immunotherapy drugs. It's not always based on the tumor shrinkage. It's based on what's called the biological response. So sometimes the tumor might stay exactly the same size, and that's still considered a win. Because you're not always going to be shrinking the tumor because it's not about tumor cell kill. It's about the immune system being enhanced and directed to the cancer to control and to maintain it. Over time, they can get smaller. But if you go many, many, many months without a tumor ever getting bigger, you're controlling that tumor. And that's important. So these agents are considered more like immunotherapy than they are like chemotherapy. Um, but they're very interesting. And... Um, there's practitioners in places in Europe and some in the United States for sure that are very sophisticated and, and that's like the only, one of the very few to tools that they'll use and they use all the host trees. In veterinary medicine, there's really only one or two that most of them use. Um, but uh, even in Canada, there's a lot of our colleagues that are using it because they can import directly from Germany, whereas we can't. So um, it's, it is the season <laughs> and it's something that fascinates me. And I think that there's a, definitely an opportunity here to um, have it become a tool that is really helpful in our patients. Are there um, specific tumor types that you would choose mistletoe or intravenous vitamin C therapy for versus other tumor types? Or is it... Um, are they applicable to all types of tumors then? They are applicable to all types of tumors. I will say that generally speaking, my impressions and the impressions of the mentors who taught me the modalities for uh, mistletoe, the greater the tumor burden in a patient, so the more tumors that they have, the more immunogenic that mistletoe is going to be. Now, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to um, have a, a longer response or, or a, a stronger, a longer survival time, but <clears throat> there does need to be some degree of um, enough tumor 
for the immune system to respond to. So that's one thing that I feel like you definitely see a difference. Um, the other is lymphoma. There's a lot of research on the human side with lymphoma and leukemia, and there is some research uh, on the veterinary side for lymphoma. So that's one that, and definitely colleagues in places like Australia, they're using it for and seeing responses. Um, and then um, carcinomas in general, I would say I have seen better responses out of a lot of my therapies, including the vitamin C and the mistletoe, um, whether the agents are better at helping them to differentiate back to who they belong or, um, you know, whether there's some other type of relationship with those tumor microenvironments, you know, things like sarcomas are very difficult to penetrate into their tumor microenvironments just by the nature of what they are. Um, so whether that plays a, a difficulty for us or not, but I will say that for a lot of my therapies and definitely for vitamin C, the carcinomas seem to be very responsive. Like um, I've had pancreatic carcinomas that have done much better than you would ever expect them to do. Um, the bladder tumors that are traditional cell, transitional cell carcinomas, um, and even lung tumors, which are generally carcinomas and nasal tumors. So I think that <clears throat> similarly to chemotherapy, we know that the tumors that are more, the solid tumors that are more likely to respond are carcinomas in comparison to sarcomas. And I do think that it's similar for the natural agents too. Interesting. Uh, we know with cannabis, for instance, that the, uh, carcinomas are more responsive to cannabis than, um, than sarcomas as well. I think there's, there is something, mm -hmm. uh, Trina had mentioned to me, there was something about the carcinoma chemistry or, you know, molecular signalers, which make it more susceptible to, to, uh, to treatment with this, let's let's um, let's shift gears a little bit, and um, I want to talk about education. And um, how how do you learn all this stuff? Is there are there any kind of you know um, credible training programs for a veterinarian to learn this stuff? And and if there aren't, why why aren't there? And and maybe there should be. Um, I understand yeah. you're currently president of the American College of uh, Veterinary Botanical Medicine. Is is that possibly a, a route that we might be seeing as a method for training um, advanced studies in integrative oncology or other integrative herbal pursuits? Talk to me about that a little bit, please. Yeah, that's a great point because I think that probably the biggest criticism of holistic medicine is the lack of uh, clinical research. Obviously, that, that's the main one that everybody knows about. But I think the other one is that the practitioners have difficulty, um, uh, the conventional practitioners have difficulty identifying colleagues that they feel like they can trust because there's a certain level of education. You know, for example, you know, if you look at a veterinarian that is boarded in X, you know that there's a certain level of training there that can be trusted that if they make a certain recommendation that you're like, okay, well, they've had to do certain steps to be able to make those recommendations. And that same type of rigorous residency training does not exist for um, any of the holistic modalities, but herbs we can talk about specifically since that's what is the primary focus of the American College of Veterinary Botanical Medicine. Now, I think that um, any holistic practitioner, I know you would agree with this, Rob, because there are so many tools, <laughs> you will be a lifelong student learning them. <laughs> 
because there's so many to learn. And based on, you know, what calls to you and what's your specific interest, you may want to do more and more training in that because, you know, if you're a jack of all trade, you're a master of none. And so some people choose to be more specialized in certain holistic modalities and collaborate, which is really what's always best for our patient. And so where you learn them is um, places that um, can give you overviews, like uh, many conferences now have integrative medicine tracks. Some conferences are specifically all related to holistic medicine, like our Holistic Veterinary Medical Association. Um, and then a lot of what other veterinarians do, including you and I, is we go to specific trainings for these modalities, whether it's herbal intensives, whether it's you know acupuncture intensives, um, you know, you'd have to go to the nutritionist meetings to have nutrition, nutrition intensives. And so really it's about <clears throat> seeking out the conferences that are focusing on what you're most interested in. And, uh, you know, e even a lot of times that doesn't have to be just veterinary conferences. I spend more time going to human conferences than I do veterinary conferences now, because, um, that's where I'm finding the information that I you know, I'm looking for now. And so um, as far as a standardization and an ability um, of other veterinarians and even pet parents to identify who really is qualified to give them the highest level of advice in these, you're absolutely right. We don't have that. Now, there are um, schools that are training veterinarians, um, wonderful programs that uh, have given access to so many veterinarians and so much education. Um, but that kind of really rigorous, um, you know, evidence-based research and program has not yet been developed. And so, yes, absolutely, this American College of Veterinary Botanical Medicine, that is what would be expected of it, um, to be similar to its uh, I guess, sister and brother programs of other specialties. And so I do hope that even if um, our program doesn't become something immediately where we're training residents and et cetera, that it can become a place for us to develop a very rigorous training program so that not only can our pet parents know where to find us, um, but our colleagues can feel really confident um, in referring to us and collaborating with us. It's exciting. This is um, uncharted territory. It's going to take quite a bit of time for us to establish the training programs and the persons with expertise who can train others. Um, it does take time, and um, and I'm um, I'm excited to participate with you. I'm, I'm president elect coming up right behind you, and I have a <laughs> commitment to um, to this educational process. I think it's a, a resource that really is much needed within the veterinary community. And I look forward to our eventually getting this established over time. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Kendra, this has really been, um, a great conversation. Um, I've, I've given you free reign and you've, you've uh, covered a <laughs> lot of very, really fascinating topics. Thank you for, for speaking so widely on these topics. Is there, I have a few more questions, but I, I feel like it's time to sort of wrap things up. Uh, is there anything that I haven't asked you or is there anything that you would like to share with our listening audience? Um, that's just a, a you know, that's burning inside you that you just want to get out, um, at this point. Yeah. I think that <clears throat> something that's really important for me in my mission, in my practice, in I feel like my career 
And something that I always share with pet parents and on other podcasts I've done is that uh, when they find themselves in a situation where they feel like it's the worst thing that could possibly happen, you know, their pet's been diagnosed with cancer, um, you know, they are now going to have to spend all of this money and time and emotional energy and they're scared and animals serve such an important role in our lives now, you know, their family members, for many people, they are their children, um, if they don't have children of two legs. And so I think that, you know, I often am meeting people at one of their worst times in their life. Um, and so, you know, obviously, I'm not trying to minimize that experience for anybody. But what I always try to encourage my owners to do is to remember two things. One is that the biggest, one of the biggest differences in a person being diagnosed with cancer and our pets being diagnosed with cancer is that although, of course, there's some degree of awareness that something is wrong with them, they, as far as we are aware, they are not conscious of what that means from an end of life and mortality perspective. And so they don't have that in their head anxiety that causes so much destruction to the human race. They just live in the moment and they can teach us so much about what that's like and how that can serve them better. And so although my owners are the ones that are carrying the burden and they're the ones dealing with that anxiety to really just, I encourage them to live in the moment with their pet every day and take it a day at a time and to um, remember what they can teach us about that, but to also remember that they're their best advocate. You know, um, of course, they seek conventional counsel, holistic counsel, if that's something they're interested in, spiritual counsel, community, friends and family, you know, whatever it is that makes them feel better, but that at the end of the day, they're their best advocate and that really it's not about, um, I got to make the right decision or I have to do this or I have to do that or I don't know what to do and this is overwhelming and, you know, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? It's just about the fact that they are doing everything they can to get all of the best resources, all of the information they need to make the best decision. And ultimately at the end of the day, they are going to make the best decision because they're their pet's advocate. And so I just like reminding owners that, <clears throat> although it's very serious in the sense of how serious this disease is and that there is going to be a lot of expenditure of resources of energy and time and emotions that this really is an opportunity to um you know take it a day at a time and to feel empowered that they are equipped to do what is best for their pet and so um that obviously can be very challenging especially when people are very emotional but you know, this becomes a lot of a spiritual journey too for a lot of people, especially if they ultimately end up losing their pet and they are with them at their end of their life. And so I think that even um, in the worst case scenario, they're going to serve such an important role and purpose in their pet's life that this is a gift that they're giving them too. So, um, you know, all of us strive to be more present in our lives. And I think that these kinds of moments really allow us to force ourselves to do that. And so I really encourage all of my clients to do it. And I think it's important. It is very important. And um, I think it's that first visit with the client that really defines so many things as far as goals and, and realistic um, and, um, considerations and everything like that. Kendra, um, before we sign off, can you talk to us a little bit about your practice 
and um, yeah. what you do in your practice and um, how a, a pet owner can find you if they are looking for the kind of service that you offer. And do you do consultations with veterinarians as well who might be looking for a, a slightly different approach with a patient? Um, tell us a little yeah, bit about absolutely. How, we, how, how that works for you. Sure. So I physically am in New Jersey. So we definitely have people who drive um, to come for a consultation. Um, pet parents need to remember that veterinarians are not allowed to establish valid relationships over the phone. And so we do have to do physical exams to be able to prescribe and treat and diagnose diseases. And so a lot of clients will drive for that first initial consult. And then after that, we can follow up with phone call afterwards. But for people who really are too far um, or maybe... Um, unable to, for whatever reason, not travel, uh, we are able to coordinate and collaborate with veterinarians and put together protocols and support them with the supplements if needed um, and help in advising them about how to use some of these modalities. So we definitely can do both. It's just the difference of whether I can be the primary dictating it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and so they can find us online uh, just at my website, drkendrapope.com, drkendrapope. Um, and what we're trying to do as the practice grows is be more of a resource of educational content. So um, also on social media, people are welcome to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube um, because we always are trying to put together videos and um, informational posts just to help educate. Because one of the biggest things that any holistic practitioner probably hears all the time is I wish I had known about you sooner. I wish I had known that this could be helpful for this. And so it's about educating the public that there are these tools that are available to them that can make a difference. Um, and you don't know what you don't know. So um, social media is a great place to find us in person if that's realistic for you. And then, yeah, absolutely. We work with veterinarians all the time because ultimately at the end of the day, that's you know how all of our patients are served best is when we work together. Nice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time today, um, Dr. Pope. You're so, welcome. This concludes today's Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver. I am Dr. Silver, and I want to thank you for listening and encourage you to join us for future shows by hitting the subscribe button so you won't miss a thing. Until next time, this is Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver. Goodbye. Vet Talk with Dr. Silver has been sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. You can learn more by visiting rxvitamins.com or give them a call at 1-800-792-2222.